Today's episode of the Bill Simmons Podcast is brought to you by FrameBridge. FrameBridge makes it ridiculously easy to custom frame your favorite items, mail them anything. Art, posters, memorabilia, even uploaded photos from your phone or laptop. And their experts will frame it and send it back in days. Pricing starts at $39, a fraction of those expensive frame stores. All shipping is free. Enter offer code BS at checkout for 15% off your first FrameBridge.com order. Today's podcast is also brought to you by ZipRecruiter.com. Your company is only as good as the people you hire. When you're short-staffed, there's no time to deal with all the different job sites until now. Thanks to ZipRecruiter.com, you can post to 100-plus job sites with one click and have the best chance of finding that perfect candidate. You can instantly be matched to candidates from over 6 million resumes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash BS. Welcome to Bill Simmons Podcast, taping this on a Friday. It's running um, this week when you're listening to it. Judd Apatow, we're finally doing this. We've talked about it for a long time. And you and I like getting you right now because you just did a whole media surge for Trainwreck like three months ago. That's how, right. A post how many interview? How many? How many in-depth interviews can one man give over the course that of a month? That is a very good question because I made a choice for Trainwreck to do a lot of press. Uh, I felt like you know, when you're breaking somebody who people love but isn't a movie star yet. You just have to do everything because you have to assume there's so much noise out there that yep. if I do 40 interviews that most people will hear half of one. Yep. And so even though you, you're sick to your stomach at babbling so much, there's only about 300 comedy nerds in America who will listen to my WTF right. and my Bill Simmons <laughs> yeah. and my, you know, you, you made it You had a big weird. Rolling Stone one. You had a whole bunch of them. Yeah. And it's always precarious because you feel like, wow. In any of these, I could end my career. Right. Or say, yeah. <laughs> or you have one sentence in a 5,500-word interview, and that's yeah. what everybody grasps onto. No, it is an art to not end your career. Yeah. It really is. Like, you have to, because I, when I work with, you know, people who are just beginning to do a lot of press, there's always that moment where you have to explain to them, here's the ways you can end your career. Try not to do that. One thing I always tell people is, don't trash other people. Yeah. A lot of young people they'll they'll like do their first interviews and suddenly, you know, they're either talking nine eleven conspiracies or they're just trashing a comedian they don't like or a movie or a TV show. Right. And and I always say, There's nothing that makes you look like a bigger jackass than attacking your uh you know, your fellow writers and directors and comedians. Yeah, it's not hip hop. It's not hip hop. Scale back. And it is a drag that you can't be honest about all of your opinions about things. But also, we all know the work is so hard that to go like, that movie wasn't funny. Right. You, you look like such an asshole. Because they tried to make it funny. We're all trying. Well, know? I really liked your interview book. I emailed you after I read it because there were so many different nuggets in there. Oh, and thank you. listening to um, Chris Rock, who... Chris Rock's a... First of all, he was a really good interviewer. I liked his HBO show. I thought he did oh, a yeah. good job of getting stuff out of people. But then the interview you had with him, I think he talks as well about the effects of fame on people sure. and what it's like to go through that process. That's like one of my little pet weird things that I love. I love yeah. I love when people are famous <laughs> and then talk about actually some of the difficulties of being famous. Because sure. I think when you're... You know, normal people are like, well, obviously it'd be awesome to be famous. You're rich. Yeah. 
You get to do what you love to do. That sounds great. Sure. And meanwhile, the more people you hear who talk about it candidly, they, they're like, yeah, it's it's actually, it's it feels kind of empty. Or it you was feel hard. this weird pressure and all that stuff. But he was great at talking about that. You're usually not allowed to talk about it. Yeah. I mean, we definitely live in a culture that if you say anything, if you complain about you know people bugging you while you're eating, yep, you know the, the, most people are like, "Well, fuck you! I hate my job. I'll take your job and have people <laughs> right. bug me while I eat." Uh, so it's hard for most people to understand what it's like to give up all anonymity. Yeah. And you know, for me, I always feel like I'm in the perfect uh, space of almost nobody caring at all. And the few people that care when they bump into me are pleasantly amused, but really don't want to talk to me for more than 30 seconds. Right. And I remember going uh, to see a Clippers game with Shandling years ago. And, you know, most people don't recognize him, but the people who do are thrilled to see him. And Gary said, I, I'm at the perfect, I'm at the perfect level. But then other people... You know, if you walk down the street with Adam Sandler, literally every single person will stop and try to talk to him. Yeah. In the friendliest way. They love him. They feel like he's a part of their family. He feels accessible to them. I remember I was with him and there were so many people in San Francisco trying to talk to him that we just took a left and went into a Korean deli to, you know, to buy a stick of gum or something. To just, you know, just to get, get a, a, breath. Like a breath. Yeah. And then they were so excited, the employees at the, the Korean Deli. And some people really enjoy talking to people. Adam really likes talking to people and is from the school of, I have everything because of you. Yeah. And, I, and I like to meet everybody. But other people hate it. Yeah. They just feel intruded upon. I had a meeting once with John Malkovich, and I, I'm sure he likes talking to people. But he did say, you know, it's very weird to be in a restaurant and know that... A, a fair amount of people are photographing you while yeah. you're eating without asking your permission. Like you're a zoo animal. Yeah. That it's a, it's just a weird reality. And now you don't know if people are videotaping you. Sometimes people pretend to take a picture of you, but they're videotaping you because they can grab the picture later. Yeah. And that's kind of messed up because what if you're like in a bad mood right before you give them the fake smile? Like I took a picture with the Rolling Stones once. A friend of mine was like, hey, uh, they're doing some meet and greets before this show in London. They bring me and my wife in. And the Rolling Stones suddenly just like walk in. They're like, okay, stand there. And they're just, you know, grumpy and whatever. They don't give a crap. They're just taking pictures of the beer distributors and whatnot. When we got the photo back, it looks like we have been friends for 30 years. <laughs> Right. They they turn it on for the one snap, and, and, but we literally did not even speak. Yeah, and but what if I had video of of the the twenty seconds before Just and be after, like, and then hey, <laughs> the annoyed you know, the annoyed. Uh, well, I was going to say Bill Wyman, but he's not there anymore. So it seems like with fame, like so with athletes doesn't matter they're playing a game they become more and more famous people know yeah. and they sign autographs but they're playing sports um actors maybe they get a little more reclusive i don't know music tends to seep into the lyrics they're trapped yeah. on the road they're in a the hotel yeah. but for comedians it's the most interesting because like i was eddie murphy was my guy that was my favorite yeah. guy ever and he became too famous 
And part of his comedy was he noticed everything and he sure. he tweaked people and he made yeah. fun of people. But now he's trapped in his little mansion in Bubble Hill. Yeah. But this is a little like George Simmons and Funny People where it's like you're this famous comedian, you made it, but now you're kind of trapped with yourself. How are you going to be funny anymore when that happens? Yeah, and I'm always fascinated by that. I'm fascinated by people who can keep it up, who can stay funny, who can stay engaged and have new ideas. Like Larry Gelbart, you know, until the day he died, was right. writing amazing movies and was so funny to talk to. And uh, those are my heroes, you know, people yeah. who can keep it going. I had uh, me and Bill Hader just went to go hang out with Mel Brooks the other day. We just went to his office to just uh, chat just... with him for fun because uh, he's the greatest of all time. Yeah. And he's so freaking funny. Yeah. He's 89 years old. He's about to go do another production of, of, of one of his musicals. He's, I mean, he's riotous. And it's fun because he has stories. But you always try to think of a question that will elicit an answer that he hasn't given before. It's probably impossible. What is he, 90? 89, 90? Yeah. So yeah. you're like, thinking, who can I ask? What, what question about Howard Morris can I ask? Or just yeah. some obscure Carl Reiner question where it's not one of his regular stories that he's going to remember something that he hasn't thought about in 40 or 50 years. But those guys are very, you know, they're still fully engaged and sharp. So in the last year and a half, I started doing... Stand-up comedy. I know. Again. I've been fascinated by this. Were you 22 years or something? Yeah, I stopped in 92. Yeah. And I had done it a couple of times when I was writing jokes for funny people. And every once in a while, I'd get up at like an alternative club and tell a story. But really hadn't done it for real. And now I'm going to play Carnegie Hall November 14th. Isn't that... How many people is that? That's about 2,400. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's a lot. And uh, Mike Brabiglia is going to be there and some special... Uh, guests uh and so please go uh, the tickets are almost sold out but it's been really good for me because it is the moment when you would never do that again i'm yeah. 47 years old i'm about to turn 48 and i thought oh if i don't do this now oh i'm never gonna do it again and i was watching amy do stand up and have a fun time and play these huge crowds and i got just jealous and I felt like it was unfinished business that I stopped it before I had really figured out how to do it the way I wanted to do it. I but remember it, seeing a young comedians with yeah, you. Which one, somebody famous was on it. Well, it's actually a pretty interesting one. Hosted by Dana Carvey. Yeah. Andy Kindler, Janine Garofalo, Bill Bellamy, Nick DiPaolo, and uh and just an exploding,ly hilarious Ray Romano. Where all of us at the taping, we were shooting some, you know, <laughs> some interviews uh, before the show. And Ray, who years before the TV yeah, show. Yeah, how would you know? Uh, Ray's so funny that we were all looking at each other like, when did Ray become yeah. a superstar? And you could see, oh, this is going to happen. He is, yeah. he's hit another level. And, uh, and Adam Sandler has gotten up a bunch at some shows I've done recently and he hadn't uh, been doing stand-up in i don't know at least 10 years and i think it's just something that people if they have the energy for it should do because it's great to talk to the audience directly yeah it, it affects you when you're writing a screenplay at home i think it wakes up some neurons in your head or just some conversation with the audience uh, so it is sad that Eddie Murphy doesn't do it because uh, I guess he's having more fun recording music in his house or whatever his lifestyle is. I never just think spending it's spending money. 
Yeah, and he still, he's still got well, the money. Well, you said, I, one of the interviews I read about you, you said one of the reasons you came back was because you felt like your self-esteem was slipping and you wanted mm-hmm. to get, you know, regain some of it by, by having Conquering a Fear, just going on stage and delivering jokes. Yeah, I, you know, on one level I thought, why am I not doing it? And when I stopped... Uh, Back in the day, one of the reasons why I stopped is I just kept getting offered writing jobs yeah. and I didn't have time to get up every night. And I was getting paid real money to, you know, create the Ben Stiller show with Ben. And it was a lot better than getting paid $400 to fly to Texas for a week. Yeah. And, uh, but also, I thought, I always used to think, who cares what I have to say? Just shut up, Judd. Who cares? No one cares. You have nothing to say. And it took me decades. It really took me till I did uh, Freaks and Geeks and the Forty Old Virgin to realize that my stories um, would connect with people, and that they are interesting, and that everyone's story is interesting. I mean, I really, I've always believed that almost any person I've ever met would be an amazing actor, or yeah. would be a fascinating character in the right story. Yeah, and that all of our stories are great. So I started doing it again as a way to say, like. You're not a fucking asshole. Like you, you're valid to speak just like anybody else is, and uh, and it's fun, and you're allowed to have fun because I think that's a another thing. Sometimes I think. Well, you also have you have material that resonates with me just because, you know, some of the stuff you've done, at least the stuff yeah. I've seen, has been about like just your daughters making fun of you and just trying to fit in in this yeah. house with three females and yeah, and that's all kind that of stuff. enough. Yeah. Yeah, because like, you I, get 35 minutes out of that. Oh, I could talk about it for hours. Yeah. I've been, I, uh, you know, I went to see Taylor Swift with my daughters and I, I could talk about it for so right. long about how uncomfortable it is to, to be uh, 47 years old at a Taylor Swift concert because you're not allowed, you're not allowed to not enjoy it because then you look like a jerk, but you're not allowed to enjoy it too much because if I'm yes. dancing around, it's really creepy well especially you like somebody gets their cell phone out exactly i can <laughs> really rock it yeah i can't rock to shake it up uh, uh and then the only way that you can really watch the show appropriately is with respect so you could yes. watch taylor swift and go i gotta admit she's good she's really good and she's that's really your good sense. yeah yeah that's your sense like you know what she is a legend she i i get it i get it and uh and every day with my kids, there's something like that. Like I was uh, telling somebody, I feel like I'm living vicariously through my kids. So they're 13 and 17, yep. you know, and my wife. Same age as Obama's daughters, by the way. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and don't think my kids don't know that. Uh, and I think I'm, I'm kind of living their life with them. Like when I was a kid, my parents didn't know what I was thinking or doing or feeling. Yeah, you're trapped in your room. I don't yeah. tell them like who I had a crush on and who I was brokenhearted from. I mean, very little communication. My kids tell me every single thing that happens every second of the day. They'll, they'll text me during school. So in a way, it's like I'm living their lives with them. So I'm, all, I'm living the life of a 47-year-old man. Uh, but you're a 16-year-old girl. <laughs> and I'm a 17-year-old girl trying to get into college. And I'm a 13-year-old girl waiting to get her period. Right. I'm, I'm, I'm living it all simultaneously. And it's, uh, it's, it's a lot. It's, so it's, your daughter, Maude, is the older one, right? My, yes, no. yes. She's 17. And she's been on Twitter for a while. Yes. So do you read her Twitter and you're trying to decode different moods and I don't have to decode it because uh, she, you know it already? she's telling me everything that's happening 
every second of the day. I mean, you know, she's doing college applications now, so I'm getting That's a full play-by-play. Uh, play play. And girls are very dramatic. Yeah. It is a funny yeah. thing. Because yeah. boys don't really communicate. And, and so they'll be enraged about something, and then I'm all worked up about it. Yeah. You know, some girl they're in a fight with, and I'm like, well, what are we going to do about that girl? And then they'll just drop it on a dime. Yeah. And, they, and it's like it never happened. And then I'm like, but aren't we still mad at her? And right. Like, no, they don't care. So I have to like find a way to have like some distance from them because their their emotions change. It is amazing. It's like you spend a lot of time. My daughter's only 10 and a half, but you spend a lot of time going, wait a second. I thought you hated her. Oh, no, no, we're fine. Yeah. We yesterday you said Yesterday you said you want to run her over in a car. No, no, it's good now. <laughs> no, it's fine. You know, we talked. Yeah. Um, yeah, it is yeah. the the swoons. See, you, you didn't have a boy. The boys, yeah. they're just dumb for like eight years. They're just like dumb little lumps of potatoes. Exactly. And you just they just kind of bump into stuff and fall yeah. down and they fart and they're happy and they take dumps. I could. I, I there are moments easy. when I think it would be nice to have a, a, a dumb boy around uh, instead of like hilarious, brilliant, <laughs> maniacal uh, little girls. Who are reading into every single interaction exactly. and comment, <laughs> taking everything personally. But they're so funny. And uh, it, it, it's just, a, it's like, there is that, it does make you believe in like the karma of the world that like a ridiculously goofy man who doesn't understand women right. is thrown into a world with three women. I often say three ages of the same woman. And True, because they are very, they are closer to your wife or my wife or yeah. anyone's wife. There's so much of your wife and the daughters. Yes. It's almost hard to separate it after a while. Well, it's there's like, no oh pride in a girl being like her dad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> No one's like, I'm just like dad. Yeah. <laughs> Not at all. Uh, so that's been great. And then, you know, it extends to working with Amy Schumer and Lena Dunham and Jenny Connor and and, and all the women that I've gotten so to work with. you figured out women. Well, I figured you're, it. It. I, you're I, the first person who's ever figured them out. I figured nothing out. I've just karmically accepted the universe <laughs> wants me to try to figure it out. Was it, you know, your daughter was on Twitter pretty early. Yeah. And she was in sure. a bunch of your movies. Like, it seemed like you were okay with just, here are my kids. You can recognize them. You can tweet at them. Yeah, like, I'm the opposite. I don't, I don't, I'm terrified of anyone knowing who my kids are. Yeah, it's uh, it's a weird thing, and we've debated it. Yeah, a lot. Uh, on one level, I like that Maud can express herself. She's really insightful and hilarious, and she gets a big reaction on Twitter. I think she has, you know, like 150 thousand people. Wow, follow her, and we bump into people and. And, and she'll, you know, they'll like know her a, a little bit just from her opinions about things. But there's definitely creeps out there. Yes. And lots of them. We certainly keep our eye on it. And it's I don't know, like, I really don't know if I'm correct on anything to do with the Internet. Uh, I talk a, a lot about it in my stand up because on one level, I think all the social media and addiction to phones and computers are going to make them disabled. They're just going right. to be idiots. To be socially, yeah. But I also inept. sometimes think, or am I like the old guy who doesn't like when Elvis shakes his hips? And I just don't get how the world is morphing. So in a way, I'm hedging my bets because there's a part of me that thinks they completely have no attention span. I mean, the amount of selfies being taken in my home, you... you 
you would think that all these girls think that they're going to become famous photographers because they literally take hundreds of photos all day long. And you do think, what was I doing at that age? Was I being productive? Yeah, with us, there's like probably seven photos of when we were eight years old. Oh, there's whole eras of me that don't exist. Hey, there's me. Try to find a picture of me in college. There's two photographs that prove that I went to college. Uh, Everything is covered now. But when I was a kid... Yeah, did I, what did I do with my time? I was just in my house watching Love Connection. Yeah, we had we had like eleven channels. <laughs> exactly. I mean, I literally and we had would go sports home. and I'd movies. Watch, I watched Love Connection. I watched Watch Live at Five with Sue Simmons and Jack Cafferty. I'd watch Merv Griffin, The Tonight Show, Letterman. So, is it worse what they're doing because? They'll just sit and they'll download the Hamilton soundtrack and then learn everything about, uh, you know, everyone in that show. Like they're processing so much information. Uh, You know, I bought maybe 35 albums when I was a kid. I had my Linda Ronstadt's Greatest Hits. I had my Chicago album. Hall of Notes. You know, they're they're going through the whole history of music every week. I am jealous of that because... We're within a year of each other, but mm-hmm. I remember like in 1986 when they, when you could start really buying CDs when they yeah. were all out there. It wasn't a giant catalog. No, but now no, if you're yeah. 15, you have 50 years of CDs and songs and sure. all kinds of stuff to sample. And when they discover something, they, they eat it all. Like if you say, hey, you should check out uh, Pink Floyd, you know, like two days later, they'll come back. Yeah, I listened to every Pink Floyd record, <laughs> and, but then they'll never listen to it again. It's like, right. you know, they'll decide what they think of it and just move on to something else. The thing I don't like about social media and the Internet in general, I, this has turned into two yeah. old guys on the couch complaining <laughs> about the new people. But when we were kids and when we were in high school, like people hit us, but we didn't really know what other people thought. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, I love Letterman. I started DV, you know, yeah. taping it on the VHS. We had a VHS yeah. in 1982 and I would tape it and watch yeah. in the mornings. I loved it. And I knew one other kid in my class who yes. liked him. And exactly. that was it. And we would say, hey, do you, you see the viewer mail? Yeah. But now I would have all these people to experience yeah. Letterman with and I would feel like I was part of a community. Back then it was just you. Yeah, I feel that there's something troubling about it all because there is a digital black hole that like there's so much material, yeah. so many people looking at so many things and also swing people certain directions, right? Yeah. Where it's almost like you, you feel like you have to follow the crowd. I, I worry about individual thought. Yeah, because when I was a kid, I, I did the same thing. And I think it was both lonely, but it made me feel special. Yeah. Like, I felt special that I liked Monty Python and no one in my entire school right. could give a fuck. Right. Uh, that was a big thing uh, for Paul Feig uh, on Freaks and Geeks. He, he, he felt it was important to identify those nerds as loving great comedy like Steve Martin and Monty Python and that they were outcasts because of it. But now maybe the entire school is talking about James Corden doing, you know, car karaoke I with see, Stevie I, Wonder. I feel like you were involved directly with two of the last things that were like that. Larry Sanders. Oh, yeah, yeah. Which was the internet was just starting, but it wasn't, no, you know, people had email, happening. people barely yeah. knew how to put a URL in, but like that was my show. I mean, yeah. that's, you know, and I was living in Boston, a couple mm. people I worked in a bar restaurant with, and we, Sunday nights, we watched it, and it was like the season finale or the series finale of it. Yeah. 
had like 20 people over. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, it, and it was like a real thing. But we had no idea there were other parts of the country that cared about the show like this. I mean, it was, it won, it got nominated for Emmys and stuff. So we mm-hmm. knew it was respected. It lost a lot of Emmys. People yeah. wrote about it. But we didn't know like it resonated like it did. Yeah. But now it feels like a whole other thing. And then I think Freaks and Geeks is like that too. If Freaks yeah. and Geeks comes now, 2015, it's a completely different experience. Sure. You have people trying to save the show after two episodes, I would guess, right? Netflix, they're yeah. binging it. Well, yeah, it would have just been on uh, uh, HBO or Netflix and lasted forever. Netflix would have been the best move, I feel like. Just dump them all well, out at the same time. No. Uh, well, I'm a, I'm of two schools with with the binge watching. Okay. Like I watched Narcos recently. Yeah. Phenomenal, just phenomenal. And and Leslie and I couldn't have enjoyed our three days with Narcos. You know, you watch. That's it the thing. You go on vacation hugs. with a TV show now. <laughs> uh, but I really like with girls, uh, which is on HBO, that people you know talk about it and argue about it for a week before you get another one. The show we're doing for Netflix now, which com- comes out in the spring, is called Love, and it's about a relationship between Paul Rust and uh, Gillian Jacobs from Community. Yep. And it's just a relationship in slow motion. So you're just you're seeing them meet. You know, it takes a lot of episodes before they even go out on a date. And but we are making it with the assumption that people will watch it in two sittings. So it's ten episodes. Oh, that's interesting. In our head. It's all about flow into the next episode because I, th- there's no chance you're not going to watch three to five when you sit down. Bloodline was like that. I feel yeah. like with Bloodline, they had three episodes of shows, but they're like, people are going to binge watch these and they'll be half asleep. So just make sure there's a lot of scenes of people outside in the Florida Keys. <laughs> make sure Kyle Chandler has yeah. sweat patches <laughs> exactly. every 20 minutes and people are just going to keep watching. I agree with yeah. you, though. I, I I personally, and I'm probably old school or an old fart on this, but I like the every week thing. Mm -hmm. I like the ability, you know, I was at dinner the other night, a double date with my wife, and we all started talking about the affair. Yes. Which was two episodes in, and it was like, all right, if that's on Netflix, one couple's ahead of the other couple. Oh, we've watched eight episodes. Don't tell me, don't tell me. And then you have that whole thing. It's nice to be on the same track. Yeah, it's just a very weird time. I have to say, as a creative person, yeah, I was going to ask you. It's got to be bizarre about it. I'm I'm torn because I'm doing the HBO thing. I'm doing the Netflix thing. You know, we're we're doing movies. uh, You know, I work with Funny or Die, so I I have my hand in all of it. But I do. There is a part of me that feels freed by the fact that there's a lot of content. Well, and also a lot of different ways to do it. Yeah, there's a lot of freedom to do things to be left alone. I mean, you know, we weren't left alone in our early days working on TV and we were canceled or yeah. people gave us crazy notes that we were always at war over. So now with HBO and Netflix, they they let you do your thing. There's thoughtful people giving notes, but they will basically let you have your vision uh, in a very positive way. But you also know there's 8 billion shows and you don't feel like you're making impact where in the old day, maybe 110 million people would watch the final mash. You don't get that sense of the world, you know, all having seen last night's all in the family. And even if they did, there's so many shows coming on next week that the discussion of that ends immediately. And I think this extends also to the news 24 hour news cycle, so much content. People can't hold on to anything to even solve problems like the climate, yeah. you know, wars, 
because we're so distracted because there's so much coming at us that we'll forget about the refugees because Hillary Clinton did a good job last night in the debate. And that makes my head spin. I don't even know what I make of it. I feel like we know too much. I don't want to know about every crime committed on earth every day, every war, every tragedy, every good thing, every nice bra a pop star wore and took a picture of herself in. It does make me want to hide under the covers and just do nothing and maybe... Well, get old tapes of love connection and, and watch them by myself. I, and I do feel like everyone's head is spinning. And it's, it is also why we, people are amused by Donald Trump. You know, it's just someone grabbing the fucking attention. Yeah. There's so much shit. So I'm going to be so horrid that you have to listen to me because I'm so fucking amusing, even though I don't know what I'm talking about. Yeah. I'm a casino owner. <laughs> I know nothing about how to negotiate with the Chinese. reality house. Exactly. Uh, and so that's what's scary about the world. You know, how people grab attention, you know, how quickly we absorb things and forget about things. I won't talk about narcos in three weeks. Right. But I, I'll still talk about Lou Grant. <laughs> you know, like I'll, I'll remember that show. I'll re- remember... The white well, I think shadow. You hit it. I yeah. think you hit it, though. I think there was less stuff that captured our attention back then. Yeah. So the stuff that did capture it was the, yeah. you know, like you noticed the white shadow poster I had yeah. here when I came in. Now it would be like, you know, it could be one of 200 posters 30 years from now. Exactly. You know, somebody... well, Netflix is going to put 26 series on a year. Uh, and so we're all going like, oh, there's they're all so good. How many can we watch? You can't. It, and yeah. it also seems like the quality is there's a lot of good to pretty good to good to very good. Yeah. And it becomes a case of I know I'd like that. Do I want to spend eight hours? Yeah. I don't have to watch it, but I know I'd like it if I watched it. Yeah. But maybe I'll save it for later. And then you never watch it. Yeah. I have, a, I have like 20 shows like that. I know I'd like it. I'll get to it one I'll day. I'll get to it. Hey, we should do an ad. What are we promoting right now? I keep telling you about SeatGeek. It's my favorite app for sporting tickets or really any event tickets. When you shop at SeatGeek.com, you can check out virtually every ticket option available for games and events. Find a ticket you want to buy, make two taps, and you're done. Show your phone at the venue and you're in. My listeners can save $20 right now. Download the free SeatGeek app. Enter promo code BS. SeatGeek will send you $20 after your first purchase. Every ticket purchased on SeatGeek is backed by a 100% guarantee. So download the free SeatGeek app. Enter promo code BS. Just do it. Uh, you've, worked with, you've worked with a lot of famous, successful people yeah. over the years. And you, what's really interesting about you, a lot of one of the things that's interesting, you've caught people at different points of their careers, mm-hmm. right? So like Shandling who I'm all-time most fascinated by. You caught him at the tail end of the best show he was ever going to make, mm-hmm. and he knew it was the best show he was ever going to make. And in your book, you dropped a bunch of hints about, yeah, it was a little dysfunctional there the last year, year and a half. Like, Well, I was there uh, for, from, not the beginning, second season. Right. But I was really uh, close friends with Gary when he was casting the show, and and when he, when he first thought of it, and it was... Uh, you know, writing it. Uh, and I, so I, I didn't get to see the whole thing. He's a lovable guy. Yeah. But it seemed like, so what was going on on that show? Because you said you, you basically learned from that show a bunch of things not to do. 
Well, from a leadership standpoint, from well, there's a lot of a collaborative standpoint, all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, there's something about auteur television, yeah, which is uh, you know the best of television. You know, singular you know, voice. Yeah, Matt Weiner, you know, doing Mad Men, or Larry David doing Curb Your Enthusiasm, or David Chase doing The Sopranos. You know, that's as good as as creativity gets when people really can do what they want to do and they're in their groove and they're brilliant. But when you add that that guy is the star of the show. That's when it gets kind of. So that's it's almost it gets, like a player coach in basketball or something? Yeah, it just, it, it, it makes it a thousand times more difficult because it's a full-time job starring on a television show. Yeah. And so the second that that's what's happening uh, you need your writing staff and your directors to work at a very high level. And if you're going for greatness, and I've, I've worked in every scenario, but with somebody like Gary, he's going for, right. you know, he's he going for the, the bleachers. greatest comedy ever. Every episode, he, you know, his standards could not be higher. Now, uh, one of the best pieces of advice I ever got when I was about to do Freaks and Geeks, Jay Kazan and I went and had lunch with Stephen Bochco. And Stephen Bochco said, making television is basically impossible. There's not enough time. There's not enough money. There's not enough brain power. Yeah. So you always have to remember that you're basically trying to put 10 pounds of shit in an eight pound bag. And that's what happens every day. It just, it, it's not exactly functioning right. Yeah. But you just do what you have to do. You do the best you can. You have to just do the best you can. And so those situations where Roseanne is running her show uh, um, and Gary, you know, running his shows. Brett Butler uh, maybe uh, being the worst example. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're, it's hard, especially when the person at the center is a genius and he is always going to be more talented than every single person working at the show. Yeah. So if Gary hires a writing staff and I'm not like, exaggerating you had a murderous row as a writing staff you need the greatest writing staff ever because gary is the best comedy writer that you can be yeah there's maybe five or six where we we go there's the larry david and seinfeld or you know phil rosenthal you, you know so so inherently the staff is not as good as gary right that's the issue and so then scripts come in, and sometimes they're great. There's certain people, like Peter Tolan, who would just write the greatest scripts yeah. of all time. But a lot of times scripts aren't as good. And now Gary doesn't have that much time to fix everything because he's acting for 14 hours a day. But right. he has to go home and fix it, or fix it at lunch, or fix it on the weekend. So there's an inherent stress to making a show like that's that. That's not sustainable for more than five, six years, right? Well, yes, but that's about the life of a show. Yeah. And, and Gary completely pulled it off yeah i mean the show when i go back and watch it it's stunning well, i like well that the last up. two years were my favorite two years i mean yeah. I, I actually thought the show got better pretty much every year yes. although the second to last year was probably the best start to finish yeah year. i mean yeah. it's remarkable and so uh you know that what that's what the stress of a show is like and i know that as a showrunner on shows that you know when i like assign a script if it comes in and it's bad you just think, oh, God, 
Yeah. I got to fix this. Or I got to find somebody to fix this. Yeah. There's an inherent stress in that. But I always loved it. You know, we used to debate it a lot at Sanders. We would say, would you want to work for a genius uh, in a difficult situation, or would you rather work for like someone who's really easygoing and do mediocre work? Yeah, who's a B minus. And I always thought, I want to be with the genius. And and so I had a, a tons of fun and always got along great with Gary and, and Gary, uh, you know, to sit next to Gary while he's writing, you know. So I'd go to his house on the weekend, there'd be a script and Gary would be... I'm mainly there to make it fun and to kick it around with Gary, but really it's the moment where Gary's going to focus and rewrite this script. Yeah. Uh, you know, to watch it happen, it, it was, you know, the best moments of my comedy career to just see Gary suddenly, it just, it's on. He, he, yeah. he He's hitting his groove. He's in the zone. He's fixing it. And uh, that's so almost I, like going to grad school for you. Yeah. At that age, right? Yeah. It's just like watching. Genius and, grad school. And him talking about these characters and, you know, people like Gary and James Brooks to them, you know, these characters are real and you have to honor them and you have to do right by them. And they want them to be, you know, honest and, you know, dimensional and flawed. And they just care so much. And that those are the people that I always wanted to be around. And, you know, Gary's the funniest. I mean, how right. funny is, is crazy. And there's been very few people who've been insanely funny and really human who can talk about what it's like to be a person on earth in a very deep way. How close was Sanders from Gary not acting anymore and John Stewart just yeah. being the star of the show and then the show continuing for like two, three, four more years? How close did we get to doing that? Yeah. I wasn't really in those discussions about it, so I'm not sure exactly why it didn't happen. It would have been an interesting, <laughs> yeah. it's an interesting what if like in pop culture history. Yeah. Like imagine if that happens now, maybe yeah. Stewart doesn't do the daily show and well, you know, it's also, a whole bunch it, of dominoes it, happen. It, it was such a brilliant stroke of Gary's, you know, to end the show by getting pushed out by Jon Stewart because yeah. that's what happens to everyone. Symbolically. You yeah. know, out of the blue, like, oh, uh, you know, New guy. There's Conan and there's Leno and then Leno's out because of Fallon and that, that, that pressure of what is the moment when if we don't replace the guy, we're going to be behind in five years. Yeah. So even though Leno's uh, number one forever with no signs of slowing down, you they have to think like, but if we don't make this change, we're not going to be set for the next era. That was actually yeah. one of the most brilliant moves any networks made in the last 25 years was the timing of when they did with the Fallon move and tried yeah. to use the Olympics. And yeah. they felt like Kimmel was gaining momentum with younger viewers. Yeah. And they were like, we got to do this now. Most, most times networks are like two years too late. They were and, actually yeah. like the right timing for once. And you never know who the network executive that's making that decision. You can yeah. have an idiot running the network and he mistimes all that, picks the wrong guy, yeah. makes it unpleasant, hurts everyone's feelings. And another executive might find a way to thread that needle to make everyone right. okay and transition well. And that was the that was the politics that Gary was fascinated with. Right. This relationship between incredibly insecure artists, uh and this and a network and ratings, so they're trying to be happy in life and pull off the show. And uh, I've said this before, but Gary said, you know, the Larry Sanders show is about people who love each other, but show business gets in the way. Yeah. And I always thought, oh wow, that's 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 an amazing way to think of it. I never in a million years would have known that, but as soon as he said it, I really understood what he was 
going for her. So you worked, then you worked with Sandler right as he's at the tail end of one of the best comedy runs anyone's had and was probably at a point where he's like, all right, now what do I do? And I think comedians, especially the A-list comedians, seems like about seven, eight, nine years of movies. Mm -hmm. And then the audiences, you can kind of go, you know, one of two ways. Either you're making the same movie you already made. Some of them, they delve into drama a little bit. They start taking more chances because it's almost like they're not sure what to do. Well, I think for all of us that. that, I'm always fascinated by that. For myself, too. I mean, I'm doing a romantic comedy now. I'm very aware it's somewhat in the spirit of... of, knocked up and yeah. train wreck and you, sometimes you think oh this is what I do I, I like showing relationships and you know people acting real and human and maybe going a little edgier than some people would go or am I out of gas right <laughs> and, and I got no other move you're doing I mean, a horror movie all yeah. of a sudden wait what's happening I mean I'm not like Ron Howard I'm not gonna like pull a beautiful mind and, and an insanely brilliant like race car movie out of my ass I, I, yeah. that's not what I could I do I love that movie oh it's amazing I thought that was maybe his best movie yeah and hilarious yeah. and exciting uh but I'm just not that. I'm not going to suddenly... You're not going to hear, like, Judd's doing the next, uh, you know, you know uh, Iron Man. Right. Um, you know who you are. So we all are trying to figure out, like, okay, where do we stretch? And and when you stretch, there's always some people that are so thrilled that you're pushing yourself. And then there's always the people who are like, why aren't you doing the thing that you always yeah. do? And I love any artist. I, like, I love that Neil Young's like, fuck you, I'm going to sound like a robot on the new record. I want to try that. I don't care what you think. <laughs> I heard him on a, uh, uh, American Masters, and and they said, "How does that feel to you? Like, you know, if it goes badly?" And he's like, "You know, I'm always excited that I just got away with taking another risk. I'm just so excited that I, I slipped another one by." Yeah, I'm paraphrasing. He said none of those words. Um, so we're all trying to do that. And I think you know, comedians are great actors. So. Sandler was so good as an actor in Funny People, and it was very. I, I actually think that was his best performance, and yeah. you know, in the first twenty minutes of the movies, are one of the recurring gags is that what was the movie that he was in? It was like some uh, Do Over, some giant movie. The, yeah, yeah, and the, he was the, like the. It was a, the posters a, a, are all around. Well, the he's house. a baby with a yeah, 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 oh, yeah. yeah. It's a baby <laughs> with an adult uh, brain. <laughs> but it seemed like that was a proxy for kind of like the worst way his career could have gone had he just started making those kind of movies, right? Well, it was funny because we talked about it at the time. Yeah. And, we said, and I said, you know, I don't want the guy to be Richard Pryor. I would like the guy to be Dangerfield. Yeah. That, you know, Dangerfield was a guy who made, uh, you know, movies. Uh, you know, he wasn't trying to do The Apartment. Uh, so it was, you know, main, a mainstream comedy guy who also in his act did not want like Dangerfield didn't tell you about his personal life yeah he just wanted to make you laugh till you shit yourself and but yet there always felt like there was an emptiness to it also because he was someone of a tortured guy and I didn't really know him but I, he would go on stage at the improv and some nights just show up and just not do the jokes and just talk about how he was feeling yeah and it, it wasn't even comedy it was it was uh, uh, revealing and sad and and amazing like he would go on stage and go you know sometimes life makes perfect sense and then you come 
<laughs> and it was dark. It was dark. And that's what we were thinking about is uh, a guy who he wants to make people laugh, but he's left empty and he's 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 uh, given up so much to be that guy that he hasn't really figured out how to have friends and relationships. Yeah. Uh, so when he gets sick, he literally has nobody to turn to except an ex-girlfriend he can try to win back and some young comic who'll kick, kiss his ass. Uh, and so in picking the the movies for his career, uh, you know, we said, oh, no, he should be the guy that's just going, you know, what will make people laugh, like me talking like a baby, me in a baby body or, yeah. or whatever. And at the time, we were like, oh... People always debate, like, are we making fun of our own movies? Are we? But it really was more like the the comedian's career. You know, we've all made all of those. You're not movies. betting a thousand. Well, I always say I was saying this to my wife the other day. You know, movies are like being a baseball player. You know, you're doing great if you're one for three. Yeah. And so, when you look at the streak that some of these guys have been on. You know, how many great, hilarious movies guys like Sandler and Jim Carrey have? It's stunning when you go to the IMDb, IMDb page. and um, Yeah, Jim Carrey's kind of, if he was a baseball player, he'd almost be like you thought PDs were involved or something. Because it's, like, it's been like a 20-year yeah. run. No, and, and I, mean, I mean, the amount of like mega hits and hilarious movies Sandler made is crazy. But I think yeah. we're all trying to figure out... You know, what do we want to talk about? Because, yeah. you know, I've done stuff about every year of life already. So I'm almost like waiting for something to happen to me to, to write about. And uh, I feel like the, a lot of these modern comedy stars, if you go back and look at some of the older comedy stars from the 70s, they if you really look at their careers, they have three movies you like. Yeah. And, and a lot of these guys. That's what are, I was saying. It's like a seven-year run, and then it's yeah. And you never know after that. I mean, you look at Sandler's thing, and you go like, "Oh my god, there's 14 of these that are like my favorites." See, I'm I've I've turned like Sandler. He had he had a lot of movies I liked, and then there were the movies that everybody was like, "Oh my god, this is Adam Sandler." But then if you have kids, yeah, that are in the age range that those yeah. movies are targeted for, yeah. it all makes sense. My kids yeah. love Adam Sandler. Every single movie sure. that he makes, they love and they've watched like the Grown Ups ones. Like I watched Grown Ups on an airplane. I was like, I don't get it. And then my kids have watched it fifteen times. I think yeah. they've actually seen Grown Ups two more than Grown Ups one. But now I get it. Sandler's making movies for his kids. Well, right? yeah. And for that whole generation. Well, his but then he'll make the ones for himself, too. Well, I think his intention is to try to make people laugh really hard. I mean, it, I, you know, we don't really put it in these terms, but it is like a real noble life to go, I am just here to put a damn smart on right. as many faces as I can and make you laugh as hard as I can. And, but yet we're all like, in a way, like rock bands. You know, like look at U2, you know, they put out all these records, but in a way everyone's in waiting for them to to slip. Yeah. And like, if you look at the, the last record, they put it on everybody's uh, phone. On the Apple, yeah. yeah. God forbid you get a free record. People are furious. Yeah, people are furious. It doesn't really make any sense. It's not like something you would anticipate. Yeah. Um, and, but if you wait six more months and listen to the record, the record is phenomenal. I saw it in concert. It holds up with everything. And, and they still throw great concerts. Yeah, and they're amazing. Awesome tour, whole thing. So for anybody who's been in the business for 20, 30 years, you're just looking for new 
ways to be inspired and ways to connect with people. Uh, so whether it's like a great song, uh, or, you know, or a funny movie, we're all just digging and going, well, what you, else is there? You figured out one of the secrets though. I know what one of your secrets What's is. What's that? You, you Youth. know how to, you know how to find <laughs> talent. Yeah. You find yeah. younger people that yeah. are on their way up and you kind of help them go from point A to point B and you've done it again and again. But so with Amy Schumer, you know, this is the complete opposite of what mm-hmm. the Shanley thing was and even a little bit what Sandler was because you don't know if she's a movie star. You think she is, but she doesn't totally know and the studio doesn't totally know. Like, were there like insecurities as she's making that movie or did you know the whole time she's a star, this is going to be big? Well, in a way, you put yourself in a trance. You just think... You just talk yourself into it. Well, comedy is an experiment. Every Every joke is an experiment. That's the thing that's... I think that most people don't understand that when it's done well, it feels very effortless. That's why comedies don't get awards. Like, you know, which is outrageous. I mean, I mean, I was watching, um, the Steve jobs movie. So, uh, Michael Fassbender, I said that correctly, right? Yes. Um, you know, he's an amazing actor, but I don't watch it and think it's more difficult to accomplish than what Amy Schumer does in Trainwreck. Uh, and yet, because it makes people happy, I think people take it less serious, seriously. And meanwhile, the degree of difficulty is probably a, a notch higher. William Goldman had a great thing. He wrote in one of his books. He wrote about how he thought there's something about Mary should have won the Oscar in like '98, yeah. and he was like, "What's harder to do than to make an entire movie theater like just be doubled over in laughter multiple times in the same movie?" And it was like, and what was a more iconic scene than the zipper scene and the cum in the hair? You know? Yeah. He's like, those, those scenes won the year. They, and we're not recognizing this. That's a mistake. Yeah. And so, you know, as much as I really loved the Steve Jobs movie, and I thought Seth was amazing in it. I was just so excited for him because he was so good. It is that funny thing where people don't understand what is so difficult about that. And we always laugh and say, you know, if I didn't have to put the jokes in the movies, these would be much easier to make. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, you just want the story without the joke part? Because uh, figuring out where the humor is and how to keep keep it real and organic and grounded, but still to elicit laughs and you know other emotions, you know it, it is very complicated. I think what Amy did was brilliant and and revealing. And she's so funny, but she'll she'll tell you the the truth. Uh, you know she'll you know, take emotional risks. Anytime I said to her, do you really want to reveal that in the movie or say that? There was never a moment where she hesitated for a millionth of a second. There's a shamelessness, which I liked. And I think that's really hard for an actor to do where they're just like, I don't care. I don't care what I look like in this scene. I don't care what you think of me. It's it's going for the laugh. And she also is comfortable that I like myself. And I think if you really get to know me a hundred percent at the end of it, You'll 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 get me. You'll see some of yourself in me, and, and that experience will be worthwhile. And there aren't that many people who do it. I've worked with people on scripts, and and they'll say, yeah. "Oh, I, I can't talk about uh, you know that person in my family like that, or I can't say that about myself." But the people who do do it, I'm jealous of those people. Yeah, it's it's remarkable when people are uh, brave like that. Seth is like that in, in the sense that Seth never has to think about whether or not. He's going to say something. He's very comfortable just being coming from the place of, 
I'm going to be living complete truth. Whatever right. I'm feeling, I will, I will tell you it. I'm, I'm not going to like play some game of filtering all this and trying to look good. I like who I am. I like my opinions. I'll just tell you what they are. And, uh, and that's why he's in, so funny. And that's why people like him. They know and, he's not full of shit. And you, is it fair to say you probably have the biggest attachment to him since you've known him since he was like five years old? <laughs> basically yeah I mean, I mean, he's like, a, he a teenager but he's been in almost everything you've been in or cross paths with it or whatever yeah it's a very unique relationship because i met him when he was 16 yeah. years old and it's interesting to did me did you know right away you knew there was something about him i knew right away that he would be great as you know a snarky part right. of this group uh on freaks and geeks and jake kazan and paul feig and i you know we all instantly you know, said to each other, what's going on with this guy? This guy's hysterical. Yeah. And you also didn't get a sense that he knew how hysterical he was. I think he probably did, but it did, you didn't feel that. You he felt the, like he you, always had the great voice too. It was yeah. just, he just felt different all the time. It just was a unique person. Yeah. And then as we worked with him, we realized, oh, he's actually not kind of this tough, hard guy. He's a complete softy and he's brilliant and emotional and he isn't at all what we were you know we were looking for a guy to be kind of the funny but mean freak yeah and then you know we learned more about him and that's then we started softening that character to the point of where we did an episode where he finds out that his girlfriend was born with ambiguous genitalia and the doctor had to decide whether or not to make her a man or a woman when she was born yeah and we wrote this really funny but really sensitive to the issue episode because we knew seth could handle it and then he was such a good guy yeah that watching him come to the realization that he loves her and that, that it doesn't bother him we thought was a great story and a great showcase for seth and in our heads we're like oh my god this is like showing seth as a movie star yeah and and while we were making it i remember jake Kazan saying that he's like oh my god Seth's a movie star and we were so excited and then to see what he's done as a director and writer with Evan Goldberg who we've had this, the same experience with uh, you know it's uh, it's remarkable it, it, it really is and I'm just a fan just as I, I feel like a fan of Seth like I was a fan of uh, Steve Martin when I was a kid I just want to see yeah. what he's going to do were you scared for his life last year? I don't I didn't really think of it in those terms I felt bad that with uh, the interview that they had made a movie that I thought was really funny and did do something that's important. We should remind the world that those people are suffering and yeah. starving and being murdered. Uh, that's the point of comedy and satire. Yeah. I mean, they did it in a big, silly movie, but they made a lot of, a lot of points in it. And, it, you know, it's all, it was ultimately a good thing for the world to, you know, have to think about some of it. Yeah, I don't think anyone thought that they would pay attention. I think I think everyone thought, well, they may like put out a "We Hate America," you know, uh, piece of publicity at some point, but no one's going to do anything. Yeah. The weird part is we still don't actually know if they did anything. I don't think they know a hundred percent about what that was. I don't know what to think until Vanity Fair does the 
27 thousand word feature about what actually happened so i'm just i'm but they did it already fortune magazine did i need, I need, a, I need another one so i felt for them comedically and as artists uh but they handled themselves really well through all of it and again it just goes back to this weird world we live in now with shared information and everyone yeah. is connected and even the head of North Korea I, I, if they were responsible is paying attention and everyone is both paying attention and forgetting instantly because even that gets forgotten that that happens but wait before we do that if you love football, check out Topps NFL Huddle. That's the NFL's officially licensed digital trading card app. With new cards released daily, you can trade with other users, collect your favorite players, and make trades with other users. Even better, play your cards and earn points in real-time daily games based on how players perform on game day. So there's a little fantasy football element to this, too. Over 300 million Topps digital packs have been opened since 2012. Let's keep that number going. Download the NFL Huddle app. For free on iTunes or Google Play, and you get 10 free packs today. Just do it. Have uh, you noticed the difference between your two daughters with this whole world? Because I always feel like this mm-hmm. stuff is generational, but it's also like mini generational. Because mm-hmm. I even noticed it oh, sure. at Grantland, like, yeah. you know, the, the guys and girls that were there from like age 30 to 35 mm-hmm. were multitaskers, which I'm yeah. not. I'm one of those, you know, I, our generation is you do kind of one thing and you might be able to yeah. do two, but you can't do five. Yeah. Um, but then the people that were like 25 to 30 were the ones that actually grew up with the internet. They could listen to a podcast. They could G chat. They could write emails and yeah. read the internet at the same time. And I was like, w- what is happening? So is there a difference between 13 and 17? Yeah. Because I think that the Instagram phenomena is more, uh, about my 13 year olds world and Snapchat uh, or no. Just the the selfie culture, yeah. You know the complete. Uh, I don't like the selfie the, culture. The, the Nobody with a daughter likes it. Yeah. I was doing this joke on stage where I said, you know, the funny thing about all that is, it's like we've all decided that we used to take pictures of other people, and we, but secretly we all wished we could only take them of ourselves. Like we right. really didn't want to. We were just waiting for the technology to only <laughs> photograph ourselves. So you know this, you know this Snapchat. Uh, you know, a lot of that is a, a, a new generation's thing. Apparently, that's how they're communicating to the 13 range well, to, so many, to the, avoid the parents, where they just send little quick Snapchats like, hey, we're meeting at Bobby's house at 830, and then it just disappears. There's no trace. Well, there's so many like deep levels to it. Like, Yeah, it's like it, espionage. Like if they take pictures of their friends, like say they're all at a party. Yeah. If they post it, they they know on some level they're sending a signal to all the kids who weren't invited to the party. Yeah, it's insulting. Uh, or if they don't like, you know, say who's in the photo. Like if say they don't mention that you're in the photo. There's a great documentary about it on uh, CNN last week they, about what it's like to be a 13 year old in this culture. Oh God. But the other, the flip side to it is they're so used to criticism that they're hardened in a way that we were, weren't. But what I don't uh, like about it is, you know, when I was a kid, I could just hide for four years. Yeah. You know, they because they're sharing where they are every second of the day by taking photographs of themselves and looking where everyone else is. You always know if you looked good or what people think of you. 
I didn't really think about that. I was very simple. I had two friends, and there was usually a girl I was stalking. <laughs> right. And I only you was trying to get- a major crush on. Yeah, I only wanted to get that one girl to like me, and yeah. I had two friends, that we, and we would have fun. The idea that all day long you're trying to get 40 different people to comment about how you look and what your plans were, and you're all aware of where you are in the popularity structure, to me would be unbearably- stressful and it also makes me think is no one ever going to write a short story again like does anybody have the attention span to do the type of creativity that takes a lot of time and and thought because everything is built for uh, consumption in one second and then instantly forgotten that's forever. what worries me about twitter yeah. because you know when we were growing up if you wanted to express yourself you wrote a short story, you wrote a column or newspaper, yeah. you made a song, you wrote a song, you wrote poetry, you did all these things as your outlet. Yeah. Now that outlet is a lot easier. Now it could be like, hey, here's my 140 character tweet. Here's my Instagram photo with a sarcastic caption. And yeah. now I don't have the need to write that short story. Yeah. And I, I think that's not a good thing. I, 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 Albert Brooks was talking about this and I don't want to quote him incorrectly, but I think what he was talking about was it satiates your need to be creative. Yeah. And then you are less likely to get your actual to be work up done. up in a coffee shop for four hours writing something or whatever, yeah. however you do it. But that being said, we are probably completely wrong and there'll be just as much stuff and they'll find their own way to do well, it. And we're, we are the people that uh, are at the beginning of not getting it. No, but here's the flip side. So when we were kids... It was really hard to see great stuff. How would you see it? We didn't have a yeah. ton of channels. I remember I went to a birthday party once in Massachusetts. When whatever, like a couple months after, remember the movie Victory with Sly Stallone? Of course. Of Somebody course. had a birthday party. Yeah, and they had the video of Victory, and they showed it for all of us. And we were like, "This is amazing! This was just in the theater, and now we're watching it at Danny's house yeah. or whatever, kid." Yeah. And now if you're a kid, you can watch any movie you want. Like your daughters can catch up on 98 of the 100 best comedies that sure. ever were made. So maybe that offsets the other stuff. I, I would hope so. My daughter Maude is very educated about television and movies and is sophisticated and hilarious. And that is my, it's my hope. But I guess as a parent, we're just all terrified. But I, I would assume my parents were terrified because all I did was watch Love Connection and Merv Griffin. Right. I mean, when I was in seventh or eighth grade, <laughs> they literally bought me a motorcycle so I would leave the house. They bought yeah. me a dirt bike because they were so afraid for me, because I watched 10 hours of TV a day. And is that any different than what they're doing? See, I'm Probably with you not. on that. I'm, I was the same way. I watched every TV show yeah. and I watched all the sports games. And, and look, now, you're, you're fully employed. It yeah, all paid off. I have, I have a job, yeah. yeah. I'm been. using the fact that I watched MASH and All in the Family and The Odd Couple every day for 10 years in my work. It, it all, it's, you know what it is? It's my Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours. <laughs> you put in 10,000 hours of TV. But their 10,000 hours is just 10,000 hours of taking pictures of themselves. So what's, so after Trainwreck comes out, mm -hmm. then it's out, you promote it, it yeah. does well, mm -hmm. Amy Schumer becomes a big star. Now it's in like the hotel pay-per-view yes, circuit. Exactly. I know. I've Pretty been hearing soon from ends people. up on cable. Yeah, yeah. you hear you're airplanes, <laughs> exactly. edited airplanes, eventually cable. But it's been, it's pretty yeah. much the run. You know, you're you're yeah. now. Is there is there a letdown factor? 
after that? Is it's it almost like winning down. a title or making the finals or something? Where afterwards you're like, ah, now it's the off season. I mean, it's all it's all strange because as a child of divorce, I hate when these things end. Yeah, and it's a weird business to be in when a lot of the times you have a very intimate experience with people for a few years and then it's just over. Yeah. And then you try to get other things going and you hope that you can. And sometimes, you know, you do. And sometimes you don't. I mean, I miss Eric Bana. <laughs> you know, I, we, you know, we hung out with Eric Bana for three months and uh, we had the best time ever. And, and I don't like that aspect of It's so funny. My I, business. I, all summer, like Grantland, you know, obviously yeah. I was there four years, hired everybody who was there and, and we were pretty tight and spent a lot of time with them. We'd Grantland holiday parties. Yeah. And and then all of a sudden, one day, I'm not going in there anymore. Yeah. And it, it really affected me. Like, oh, I really sure. felt like all these people were part of my family. And now it's like, all right, well, I guess I'll see them occasionally. Yeah. At, like, drinks, maybe. It's, it's Maybe I'll have an opportunity to steal them back at some <laughs> point. <laughs> maybe I'll rehire a couple of them. <laughs> no, it is. But, it's very sad. Yeah, it's it a, is. It's it, like, it feels like almost like graduating high school or something. That's why I couldn't even recover when Freaks and Geeks was canceled. I just, oh, my God. I just thought, oh, I want to hang out with these people and everyone's so creative and we're in a groove. And, and I probably had a nervous breakdown from it that took about 12 to 15 years to to work through because that was like your baby that was you well, put all did you put all your eggs in that basket mentally i didn't look at it that way it was funny because i was doing another pilot at the same time with amy poehler david krumholz and kevin corrigan and andrea martin wow and it was about a young therapist and i loved it and that's what i wanted to do that year and then i was helping paul feig with freaks and geeks which he created and and i was excited about it but then my pilot didn't get picked up and so I uh, you know worked full time with Paul and and Jake Kasdan, and then you just fall in love with everybody and the work and uh, and you just know something magical is happening. So when yeah. it ends, you just you know it it, it rocks your world uh, uh, in ways that you don't anticipate. And did so, you feel did yeah. you feel like you failed when it got canceled? I didn't think I failed. I thought that they were because you knew people loved the show. Yeah, but you mo- it's more like I, I they blew this for me. It's kind of funny. I think that we felt a responsibility to have the show feel like it was finished. So we shot the last episode three, two or three before we got canceled. Oh, because we were so. So uh, you were that no, worried at that point? Yeah, we were like, let's shoot the finale. We didn't even tell them it was a finale, but we just reordered it yeah. so that even if they said you have to stop shooting now, there would be a, an end to the series, or at least an episode that could be the end. And yeah, it, it is like a responsibility to the characters and the world. to The fans. Yeah, I remember saying to Paul Fink, Paul, write the finale. Let's get it going. And Paul directed the, the finale beautifully. And and uh, and then it became a little bit of almost like a miniseries. So you could watch it. And it although you want to know what happens to them, it has a great conclusion. And uh, so would you say is the right age for kids to watch Freaks and Geeks? Like 12? I think you could watch it at 12 or 13. I mean, the only thing that's actually bad in it is uh, that you'd have to discuss marijuana. I was going to say there's some pot, Let's, some pot usage. There's not much sex in it. I mean, no. it, it's, uh, and, and I always think that whatever age you think 
uh, is the right age for your kids to watch anything. They've been watching things that are way worse two years before that. Oh, yeah. Like, you'll go, I don't know if my kid's ready for Freaks and Geeks, but if you go in your kid's room at midnight, they're probably watching Scream or Rent or just something challenging. YouTube, which we didn't realize with my son, who turns eight next month, but (laughs) didn't realize that he was, like, on YouTube watching the 100 greatest horror movie deaths and stuff like that. And all of a sudden, he broke out a Jack Nicholson Shining impersonation. I'm like, wait a second, what? No, How do you, you know about The Shining? Yeah. You have to give up because there's no way to stop it. You you have to um, you have to just get them to talk to you about it. Right. That's what it is. Is we you can't restrict it because they will see it anyway. They'll watch it on their They'll watch. Sneak around. They'll watch it on a toothbrush. The, the the screen is everywhere. Their friends have it. The friends' parents don't pay attention, so they're going to watch anything. They're going to come home and just. You know, ask you about uh, you know human centipede when you least expect it, or uh, you know, out of the blue, you know, they'll be like, uh, why do why do they have dolls with replaceable vaginas? So you just have to be ready to to share and and answer things. Like my kids told me about a a video. Okay, here's the video. These a, a man and woman kill a bear in a tree. The bear falls out of the tree dead and they instantly go fuck on it <laughs> i swear to god it was a real video that went around the internet so we all can agree that's the worst thing you've ever heard <laughs> in your whole life <laughs> so imagine having to explain it to your children like well you know just uh you shouldn't do that yeah yeah most people don't do that i mean all day long you're 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 faced with them you know, seeing the worst behavior of human beings and you have to try to explain why people do it and why you shouldn't watch more of it. Because I would be afraid to have a boy who wants to seek that stuff out because I think if I was young, I would be obsessed with just finding weird You'd stuff. You'd watch the worst stuff. Yeah, I agree. My daughters are like, that's gross. And then they, you know, they see it occasionally, but for you the most push part, the they're, they're more interested in, you know, a, a new, you know, Drake video or something. Uh, or, you know, they'll, they'll still enjoy an anchorman farting or, you know, montages of models falling on the catwalk. But th- for the most part, th- they're not deviant. But boys are deviant. It, it, it's probably scarier with boys. Yeah, our son found on Hulu they had all the South Parks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he was watching them, and I was like, well, he's way too young for that. But yeah. at the same time, that's a great show. I want him to have a sense of humor. Exactly. exactly. Maybe he can handle it. And then, like, one day later, he's yeah. in the kitchen, and my wife said something to him, and he goes, suck my balls! <laughs> we're like, all right, this is over. No more South Park. But then you have to decide, do you care if your kid says, suck my balls? And I that, think we do it. <laughs> that, that's at this the point, debate. yes. The answer is yes. Because <laughs> that is it. Like I, I showed South Park to my kids probably too early. Yeah. But I just wanted a South Park buddy. I wanted to be able to watch yeah. it with someone. Um, I watched a Louie episode with my daughter and then suddenly oh, that's uh, interesting, Chloe Sevigny is like, masturbating underneath a table and you have to decide how many seconds will I watch this with her before oh, I have to shut it off and it lasted way longer oh, my God. than I expected uh, but that is you know, the debate at our house all the time which is is it bad to say suck my balls or is it really fun and is it maybe 
one of the good things in life. Well, your wife is a longtime <laughs> actress, so I'm sure she's yeah. more of a push the envelope type, right? I think as a family, we've given yeah. up on, uh, well, now that at this age, on, you know, restricting language yeah. and, and all of that. We get, I mean, we, we get a, a kick out of it. And, I, you know, as long as people are kind and your kids are kind, they can scream about their balls all day long. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so when's the Carnegie Hall thing? Carnegie Hall is uh, November 14th. It's part of the New York Comedy Festival. Yeah. When's this run? Um, Who knows? Tuesday or Wednesday next week. Tuesday or Wednesday next week. Wednesday, Tra- Wednesday next week, I'm at the Gotham Comedy Club with Pete Holmes. Oh, in well, New it'll, York. it'll run by then. Um, uh, and then Trainwreck is available in every hotel room in America yeah, for 1999. I, I, I think Trainwreck comes out in about two weeks. On Blu-ray, there's a lot of extras that are actually pretty cool. If you if you want to see me uh, talking to LeBron James a lot, if you like oh, to see shit. The I never asked you. I had two small things to ask you. Okay. All right, we'll do these and then we'll go. One, does it bother you when you're flicking channels on cable mm-hmm. and one of your movies is on like TBS or Comedy Central and this and it's just been the scenes have been mutilated because they have to do stuff for. Well, I've, Do you get, ever I, get used to that? I've recently, well, not that recently, for the last four or five years, I do the edits myself for, oh, you do for it network for, TV. Oh, that's that's great. So some of my early films, some of my early films are still kind of butchered, but the last bunch, you know, when I record the ADR sessions, like their their voices, I'll try to get some decent curse replacements. Right. I remember I saw Glenn Gary Glenn Ross and. You know, Al Pacino's like, you, you stupid bunt cake, you bunt, you know, um, uh, so I try to try to face is the worst one. Sometimes I'll recut the movie because I'll go, this scene does not work without the curses or whatever the dirty part is. And I'll, I'll, I'll say, give me the footage and I'll cut a completely different version of the scene or find a scene. For the TV version? Yeah. Find a scene that wasn't in the movie ever and re-edit the scene sometimes they say See, like, i think <laughs> i wish people did that more though oh no i quietly do it like like they've said to me like can you cut 12 minutes out of funny people to, so it fits the amount of time yeah and i'm like oh it's gonna ruin the movie and then i go off and i cut 12 minutes and i'm like that was a pretty good cut yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but i always get mad because i feel like people are like your movies are long i'm like well then why do you go home and watch seven episodes of Breaking Bad in a row. Like, you'll watch seven hours of true. Narcos. Give me eight minutes. Yeah, you and I are kindred <laughs> spirits because my columns are always too long. Yeah. Everybody says your movies are 15 minutes yeah. too long. It's like, hey, what is 15 whatever. minutes between friends? So, uh, LeBron James. Yes. Your best LeBron James story. My best LeBron James story. That you haven't said an interview yet. Yeah, that's an interesting question. What is the best LeBron James I mean, James he's probably... Story? He's about as famous as anyone you've been around. Yeah, I mean, it's fun when LeBron James is around us because uh, although we're, like, sports fans, we're not, like, insane sports fans. Like, we would be much more excited, you know, if, uh, you know... um, you know, Lily Tomlin dropped by the right. set. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's just because we're comedy nerds. Uh, so as a result, we are very respectful and we love him, but we're not, like, shaking in our boots the way the the super hardcore fans would. And as a result, I think he really likes hanging out with us because we're not weirdos that way. Oh, that's interesting. So he yeah. he probably felt you're not gawking at him. And no, no. Although he is six foot nine, 270. That takes a little while to get exactly. used to. He's bigger in the chair. And yeah. so I think that he enjoyed being with us because you know we really like him as a person. Like yeah. we, we fell in love with him as a 
just a guy who was really funny and fun to work with and who would just shoot the shit with us. He it was very casual. And so and now uh, you're going to direct Space Jam, too. I'm all for it. I, you're I, ready. Throw your hat in the ring. I was going to make some money, get some me, points. Me and LeBron have some chemistry. <laughs> We've got some comedy uh, chemistry because I'm very uncomfortable around athletes most of the time. Like when we did uh, Kicking and Screaming, yeah. Mike Ditka was in it. And I don't think I said three words to him because right. I don't know all the old football stories or even current football enough to shoot the shit with him. Yeah. So then I'm all I'm just left with like, so, Mike, are you going to get the steak or the chicken? <laughs> so like, I'm left with like nothing. But, you know, hey, uh, how's that knee brace? Does that work for you? Right. <laughs> well, LeBron is like a legendarily funny guy behind the scenes, like with teammates yeah. and stuff. So I'm not surprised that he probably loved yeah. being around all the comedy nerds. Well, I think all those guys are used to busting each other's balls. Yeah, so, oh, totally. So they, they've built up really strong comedy uh, instincts. But, you know, the funny thing about LeBron is we were talking about comedy movies. And he was really sophisticated about it. He knows his movies really well. And he was talking about different actors and actresses and who he liked and who he didn't and who, you know, who he thought, you know, was uh, doing strong work now versus other work. And I thought, oh, he, he, you know, he's on top of this. So he could do Boomerang too, maybe write and direct it. Well, uh, I was thinking more (laughs) of, uh, uh, um, Shit, I couldn't pull the reference fast oh, enough for it to work. It was right uh, there. Bowfinger. Bowfinger. Oh, interesting. <laughs> LeBron James in Bowfinger. You know the secret with professional athletes that become that famous? What's they that? watch a ton of TV and they check their Twitter replies all the time. That's why they're, we like They them. don't have a lot of time. I mean, they, yeah. they don't have a lot of, they're not hanging out with people. They're yeah. kind of trapped all the time yeah. on a plane, on a hotel yeah. suite, in a car. That's why that's they're, what they do. that's what we love is that athletes and sometimes like musicians, they know their comedy really well because they're stuck on the bus and the plane all day long. Yes. So you'll bump into any of those people. And they're in charters. Like, you'll bump into like Neil Young and he's seen like every goofy movie ever made. You know, that's the funniest part. They all know Walk Hard Inside and Out and that's the best. Judd Apatow, I'm glad we finally did this. We got it done. Yeah, it's done, man. All well, right, thank, thank you, you so me. much. Thanks for coming here. Sure. Don't forget, my podcast listeners can use promo code BS for the SeatGeek app and get a $20 rebate off your first SeatGeek purchase. You count as a podcast listener. I am positive. So you should do this. Every ticket purchased on SeatGeek is backed by a 100% guarantee. It's the best way to buy tickets. To redeem your promo code, download the free SeatGeek app and enter promo code BS. Thanks again to Topps NFL Huddle for sponsoring today's episode. Collect and trade officially licensed NFL cards with football fans around the globe. Use your collection to compete in daily fantasy style games and keep coming back for new cards, free coins, and maybe even rare inserts. Download Topps NFL Huddle free in iTunes or Google Play, and you get 10 free packs if you do it. That's it for the Bill Simmons Podcast for this week. You can get all the BS podcasts at BillSimmonsPodcast.com. We have them on SoundCloud. We have them on iTunes. If you subscribe to them on iTunes, you get them right away. And we're going to have Stitcher soon, who, uh, soon, hopefully. Friday, Joe House. We're going to quickly do NFL picks, and then we're banging out part one of the annual NBA Over-Unders podcast. Over-Unders for wins for every team. We love gambling. We love the NBA. I love doing these podcasts. Until then.